Now it is Media Watch on a Sunday. This week, Colin Peacock talks to a reporter retiring after more than 40 years in journalism, and he looks at a local TV current affairs show with a strong Aussie accent. First, the latest step towards a new public media giant for New Zealand. We now need to familiarise ourselves with all of that information, um, where the business case is up to, um, and cast with this sort of expertise, take, let them take that away, let them digest that, and then let them come back and say, actually, in real life, that's not going to fly. That was Tracy Martin, former New Zealand First Party deputy leader and now the chair of an eight-strong panel of media people appointed by the government last Wednesday to oversee a business case for a new public media entity to replace state-owned TVNZ and RNZ. And when that business case is done, they'll advise the Broadcasting and Digital Media Minister, Chris Farfoy, if they think the proposal will fly or flop. And Chris Farfoy, who hosted that event on Wednesday, certainly won't want to take to Cabinet anything his fellow ministers won't want to give a green light to, because he's been there before. He first started talking about the possibility of a new public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ back in 2019. And thanks to a source spilling the beans to RNZ in January 2020, we learned that the government had settled on that option of a new public media entity within three years. But back then, Cabinet wanted to know more about precisely how it would work, and the consultancy company PwC was hired for the task, under the banner Strengthening Public Media. But then came COVID-19, and that business case was put on ice. But a year later, Chris Farfoy told the parliamentary committee reviewing both TVNZ and RNZ last month that business case is now being put together by another crop of consultants from Deloitte, and they're running the numbers on what a new public media entity would cost to develop, implement and operate. The minister said that should be done by mid-year before he takes it to Cabinet for approval before the end of the year. Now, the new expert group will also oversee the drafting of the charter to govern a new public media entity and also how it would collaborate with and complement the work of private media. Now, one among that new guidance group who knows all about that is Michael Anderson. He was the chief executive of MediaWorks until last year when he heavily criticised the government for leaving commercial companies like his in the lurch. I asked him if that's the perspective he'll be bringing when he advises the minister on a new public media entity. Well, you were very staunch about it in your role as um, the chief executive at MediaWorks, saying that the government was bolstering its own state organisations at the expense of ones in the commercial market, even that it, it might put you out of business. I mean, are you going to be telling them about that experience and saying they've got to bear that in mind when they build something new? Again, you know, I don't think that's the role that I specifically play. I think the role that, that the committee plays is to look at what is, what has been, and what do we need to move towards anticipating the way that the audiences are moving. And do you reckon you've got a pretty good understanding of what you think the New Zealand public wants? Because this is fairly tight. You've got a, uh, the business case being done by the middle of the year and then they want to get it through Cabinet by the end of the year. The committee is very diverse. Uh, it brings a lot of different experience, New Zealand experience. It's relying on a lot of good, valuable information that will be um, brought into the committee. So I don't think that that was, is going to be an issue really. That's Michael Anderson, former chief executive at MediaWorks and one of the eight experts overseeing the forthcoming business case for a new public media entity. Now, as we heard there, the government is now in a hurry with this and the chair of that new governance group, Tracy Martin, also told reporters that part of her job is to hustle it all along as the minister wants. As I can hear from your questions, people are frustrated that it has taken this long and the minister is as frustrated as everybody else. So that's what I bring.
But after months of not much action on this, is moving quickly to a big decision on a new public media entity really a good idea? Engaging with the public will be part of the new group's job, reporters heard on Monday, but the Cabinet will make a decision on a public media entity for the future without formally consulting the public. And until then, it's not going to be really clear at all what the proposed new media entity will actually look like. The Minister has insisted this is not just mashing together the public service non-commercial RNZ, whose foundation is radio, with TVNZ founded on heavily commercialised television broadcasting. But previous Cabinet papers make it pretty clear that it will have what the Minister calls crown and non-crown sources, in other words, a mix of public funding and commercial revenue. When TVNZ's Chief Executive Kevin Kenrick was asked about all that again at this year's annual review of TVNZ in Parliament a month ago, he said that TVNZ was merely an observer to what was going on at the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. But RNZ's top brass have been much more enthusiastic. At RNZ's annual review, Chairman Dr Jim Mather even echoed the Minister's own language on strengthening public media when he declared RNZ's strong support. It is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a stronger public media system that would benefit all New Zealanders. But with the shape and the scope of any future public media entity still a mystery, why are RNZ's top brass so enthusiastic about it? I asked Paul Thompson, Chief Executive and Editor-in-Chief of RNZ. We think there's a, a strong case for more public broadcasting. We know that commercial media have increasing headwinds with their model. We know that there's increasing misinformation and risks of polarisation in community linked to the rise of the digital platforms and all the disruption that they're bringing. We think the best response to that is a media sector that's sustainable and able to adapt. And a key part of that should be a really strong public media organisation. So we think that's a strong case. We're not uncritical. We think that it needs to actually meet some key requirements. It needs a charter that enshrines its public media purpose at its core. It needs to be sustainably funded. It needs to be future-focused and not too um, focused on changing the things that we know already work. It needs to have a look at what the changing needs are, and we're going to be doing our best to influence the thinking and make sure that, uh, that we get this right. But the one thing we do know about what the Minister's proposing is it's going to depend to a large degree on television advertising. I mean, that is a big risk, isn't it? Because that changes the nature, the culture, the scope of whatever is possible. Yes, it's difficult. Not impossible, but it is difficult. The Cabinet paper makes it really clear that the new entity, if it happens, will have a public media purpose. Therefore, the funding model needs to support that. If we get too caught up in trying to figure that up at, out at the moment, those discussions will take over the critical point, which is to figure out what the mandate of this thing will be. But Labour-led governments in the past 20 years have had two goes at reforming Television New Zealand, public television, doing it through heavily commercially funded TVNZ with, with non-commercial channels that only lasted for five years before they had a charter that wasn't especially well funded and uh, regarded as not any kind of success by almost every critical analyst. Are you really confident that another Labour government also looking to rely on a broadcaster that will be funded through television advertising is going to come up with the right model? That, that's good for public broadcasting? Well, I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. The intention is there to make sure that this works and that it is a public media entity. Yes, it will have a mixed funding model. That's going to create a whole lot of questions which need to be resolved. It's not my job to resolve them. If New Zealand were to create a new public media entity that relied heavily and was dependent on maintaining or growing commercial revenue, it would automatically tilt 
it's a focus towards maintaining those revenues and looking after those commercial services. So somehow this new policy needs to make sure that doesn't happen. How could that be done? How? I think it comes down to the mandate of the entity that is enshrined in legislation, that it has a charter that ensures it's independent, and it has enough funding to underwrite that loss and that decline in commercial revenue, which is likely to happen. In the annual review of RNZ, the written questions that RNZ answers, one was uh, what work has been conducted around mergers with any other agencies That's last year. Um, RNZ's response was, was not very revealing. It just said work carried out by several agencies to investigate a number of options to strengthen public media in New Zealand. But what has RNZ been doing, or yourself personally, towards this new public media entity? We, we have off, uh, frequent meetings with officials and with the minister to um, contribute our ideas. And uh, last year we were heavily involved in the drafting of a partial business case. This is the one that was put on hold as COVID hit. And that is now being thawed and has been picked up by Deloitte. And we'll be back in working with those people, I'm sure, in future. And absolutely, we're talking frequently with TVNZ, but that's nothing new, really. But the business case um, is specifically looking at how a new public media entity uh, would operate in the future, including how it would collaborate with and complement the work of private media. But who knows what the private media will do, what its strengths or weaknesses or failings or gaps would be in two, three, four, five years' time. Why does a new public media entity have to take into account the rest of the commercially owned, privately owned media? My personal view is that that is a really positive thing. I mean, the last thing that New Zealand needs is a publicly owned, commercially funded or commercially dominated media entity that's going to create more pressure for the media sector, which is already experiencing lots of challenges. And the public media entities within that need to make the whole ecosystem healthier, not less healthy. Well, the minister says he wants this all uh, done, up and running, if possible, if, if a new media entity is the way to go by 2023, which is, you know, his term in government. So, so far as he can see, that's the horizon for him. But between now and then, doesn't that mean that for yourself and, and also for TVNZ, for that matter, pretty much anything big you want to do is, is on hold, is parked, as the minister put it? Because, I mean, for example, uh, his opposition counterpart, Melissa Lee, has put a string of questions to him. He has replied to a whole bunch of them saying that any decisions on this depend upon a new public media entity, so no final decisions are being taken about the future delivery of public media content. Is everything stalled now till 2024? No, no, it's not, and we're really clear about that as um, our board and executive level. We've thought a lot about this. We've got a new two-year strategic plan that we're working on at the moment. There's lots of new things in that. Um, the vast majority of RNZ's activities are going to be highly relevant to the new entity anyway. I think what the ministers asked is that we just, if we're going to launch something or do something significant, we just have a you know, check ourselves and make sure that it can connect to what that, that future that he's building. But I think it would be utterly disastrous just for us to sit still for two years while this, while this thing happens around us. We'll take one specific example, though. Um, RNZ's proposed youth service, I mean, that founded last year. Um, that 102 FM frequency is still out there. Um, the minister says any work on that is stalled. Um, in fact, when asked about that by the opposition, he said any decisions on allocation will be considered within the broader context of uh, the work the government is doing on the viability of a new single public media entity. So, yeah, that's effectively stalled. So you can't move on that at all in the next two years. Yeah, but 
that, that is that is correct, but I think it was unlikely to be a quick resolution anyway, even if the strong public media policy didn't exist, I think we'd still be having those discussions and it probably would still have been stalled. What we've decided to do is make sure that we can get on and do some new content for Rangatahi in the next couple of years, which doesn't depend on access to spectrum, and we're comfortable with that. I think that at some point that proposal will come back onto the drawing board, but it's not something that I'm losing a lot of sleep on. We can just get on and do some good things in the meantime. At some point, you still want that frequency, but still sitting there well, for it's still tagged, and, it's still yeah. tagged towards young audiences. Uh, so at some point, someone needs to decision make a decision around how that's allocated. So we're going to do what we can in the meantime. When the minister uh, unveiled this to reporters on Wednesday, uh, he was asked if you don't get a business case that this governance group appointed this week approves of and that the cabinet won't go with, uh, then we'll have to carry on as usual. Do you think that's the, the only option if, if the business case isn't persuasive? Well, my view is that something is going to have to change. And if you look at the status quo at the moment, it's not great. New Zealand has um, a low level of public media funding compared with um, similar nations. There's growing gaps in coverage. That's just not news coverage, but it's also coverage of all our cultures, all our languages, our, our arts community. But post-COVID, the spending's never been higher. Post-COVID, the sum spent on broadcasting and public media now in the region of $300 million a year. That's a lot of money. Bit of a sugar um, hit, though, isn't it? Because all of that funding is time-limited and linked to COVID. As a nation, we're going to have to figure out a more sustainable, ongoing way to support media. I also think that there's a range of public media entities in New Zealand that do a job within their own uh, um, remits, but there's not a lot of coordination, so there's probably an opportunity there. The minister and the and cabinet um, and the government will need to be convinced if it does something significant that it's going to actually be of benefit to New Zealanders. Well, you and RNZ's governors are supportive, but this is all going on out of the view of the public. You know, we don't know what these consultants are up to, no idea what this business case will be, no idea what the, the proposal is beyond something that's partly commercially funded, partly state funded. I mean, the public doesn't have a say in this at all. You're not concerned about that. They have no avenue whatsoever at the moment uh, before this thing goes to a cabinet decision. I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, my understanding is that the governance group is going to get out and talk to uh, people about the proposed charter. New Zealanders need to trust that this new entity is actually going to work in their interests. And therefore, I think we've all, there's a big obligation to make sure there's a, an open conversation where all of that information is shared. So I think it's a good challenge and certainly something I'll be encouraging. Finally, you, you support this, uh, what the government is doing. Um, you're going to help them create it. And if this is the decision they take by the end of the year, do you also want to lead it? Uh, I have no comment to make on that whatsoever, and it's certainly not where, where my thinking is. That was Paul Thompson, the Chief Executive and Editor-in-Chief of RNZ, talking to me there about progress towards a new public media entity to replace RNZ and state-owned TVNZ by 2023, something which moved a step closer this week with the appointment of eight people to the Strong Public Media Business Case Governance Board. Here at Media Watch, we look at local media companies and the decisions they make. That's one of the things the programme was set up to do 20 years ago when it got underway. But back then, one journalist was already doing that as part of his own commitment to his craft. For the past 20 years, Simon Collins has been not only a senior reporter for the New Zealand Herald, 
but also a campaigner for journalism itself because he feared the quality of it was being compromised by decisions being made in boardrooms and the wider commercial forces at work on the media. Back in 2009, Simon Collins wrote a report about the effects of all that for the Journalist Union, and Media Watch asked him at the time, don't journalists have to adapt to change just like workers in any other industry? Well, I suppose we are adapting to it. What we're saying here is that we can't stop the technological and commercial changes, but we shouldn't just write for the profit of our owners. We should also keep in mind that we have a public role to fulfil in a democracy and keep our eye on that to the extent that we can. But Simon Collins' commitment to what he called public issues journalism was clear in his own work as well. For instance, he interviewed 600 people from Cape Ranga to Bluff in 2008 for a week-long Herald series about the mood of the nation. And he also interviewed 600 different people before the 2005 election. When news seeped out on social media last month that Simon Collins was leaving the Herald and journalism, it triggered a stream of tributes and expressions of sorrow. We won't see his like again was the common theme. And as Simon Collins reached the end of his own career in journalism, I asked him this week about the good, the bad and the state of it right now. Technology has changed. The fact that everything is now read online, obviously it's had a financial impact, so it's taken the advertising away because we don't have the print newspaper full of ads that used to pay for news. But it has also changed the way we select and write and cover news. For for a start, it's made it instant because we we used to, when you're writing for a newspaper, you had the whole day to prepare a a balanced and comprehensive and and a story in which you checked all the facts and got all sides of the story represented. Uh, These days, we're trying to beat stuff or yourselves Radio New Zealand by getting things out instantly online. For some developing event like a tsunami the other day, you'll get you'll get all these stories updated all the time about what's the latest. Obviously, there are great advantages in knowing about a tsunami straight away, for example. So nothing wrong. We can't avoid that, but it has changed the nature of journalism a lot. Secondly, because news editors and so on can now measure exactly how many people are reading every story online, if a story gets a lot of hits, a lot of clicks, the editors will be looking for a follow-up straight away. Whereas if something might be a very important story um, is not being read, um, it'll die. They won't want any more about it. Um, if it's not getting the hits. That, that's made a big difference. Um, and the third thing I think that's made a difference to journalism is that in order to get those hits, we are encouraged to take a line. They're expressing an opinion about a story rather than just reporting the news. And I, I think that's a slippery slope which we need to be careful of because sharing opinions is very important, but a great thing. But it needs to be shared on the basis of agreed facts in the first place, and, and our role as journalists is to present the agreed facts. And if we don't do that carefully in a balanced way, then... Society is the poor. Those are three things that have changed for the bad. Um, but you know, the, the broader context is that the internet has opened up an ability for everybody in the world to have a say on anything they like. That's a huge benefit. So you know, there are pros and cons. We, I think, we have to manage the bads while welcoming the goods. Indeed, actually, for that journalism matters conference back in two thousand and seven, you wrote a paper about the technological and commercial pressures on journalism at the time. Um, and you, you made that point that actually things were, a lot of things were better than when you started out in 1976 at the Evening Post in Wellington. <laughs> uh, less deference to authority, uh, more coverage outside of a, a white male elite and what they were up to, more powerful reporting of human tragedies. And you also say publishing comment and opinion is a good thing in a sense and something that wasn't happening to push things along you know, back in, say, the mid-70s. Uh, yes, that's right. I do think it's great that we have a lot of comment about, it, about everything. Um, I'm just saying that it's not good that it's built into the original story about the news. <laughs> we, 
we, we should be able to see the facts before we separately comment about them. That's, that's all I'm saying. Indeed. And you mentioned there that news editors can now see almost immediately which stories are getting a digital audience. Does that put the onus on us, on the audience, that maybe we get the news we deserve? Yes, I think it's important that we learn to distinguish as, as consumers of news the news that is worth reading and the news that is just generated to get more hits. So we should recognise when we're being exploited by a news media organisation. So, yes, the consumers, I think, do have a role in it. And then I think also that the media organisations need to be aware of their social impact as well as their commercial objectives. I mean, that NZME is there as a company to make money has to make money for its shareholders listed on the share market. But the, the product that we produce has a social effect. We, we have less specialism in, in, the, in, in our journalism. So uh, there's a lot more coverage of what comes out of social media. We have people at the Herald and said me, um, staff probably radio New Zealand have the same um, people whose job is just to monitor social media and find interesting stories from what people are posting. And, and that's in some ways a great thing because that's a democratisation of origins of news. But society has to have facts about what's going on in society uh, in order to become aware of the things that need to be fixed or improved. Um, part of the role of a news media organisation needs to be to have those rounds people just specifically looking at what's happening in that field. And another perhaps more regrettable recent trend, a lot of people seem to be more vocal, more antagonistic to the media. Do you think this is something we need to be concerned about? A sort of political influences on people are, are fueling scepticism that that isn't really healthy? I, I think we should be building a caring community together. That's, that should be the role of, a, of the Herald or the, uh, a media organisation at the moment. I think that needs to include all parts of the community, so we shouldn't be excluding racists or um, any other people whose views we disagree with from taking part in the debate that we offer a platform for. The, the role of the media is to build the caring community by giving everybody a sense of being part of that community, that they can take part in the debate from any point of view. We should listen to them all, care for them all, rather than shutting them out and saying, condemning them and saying, um, you know, you're beyond the pale, we don't want to hear from you. The, I mean, social media, people blame social media a lot and we, you know, we have these movements to shutting people out of, uh, and Twitter and so on, shutting Trump out of their feeds. I don't like that. I think we should be encouraging everybody to be able to talk to everybody else. Well, finally, Simon, uh, after, I think, 42 years in journalism, if we don't take it all the way back to the newspaper you began uh, as a nine-year-old um, to be distributed on the <laughs> school bus, yeah. uh, and uh, the 20 past years at, at the New Zealand Herald, and that's only one of your stints um, at the Herald. I mean, are you leaving now with a sense of relief or regret? <laughs> Well, see, ask me in a year's time. <laughs> but no, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I have been feeling increase, increasingly uneasy with the way the industry that I'm in has been driven by hits and, and dollars in the last few years. Um, and so I'm, I'm wanting to get out and do something completely different. So I'm, I'm going to become a budget advisor for St Vincent de Paul and hopefully be um, help people um, in a more direct way than I have been. So um done one thing for a long time, high time to do something else. So no journalism at all, no blog, no social media account? <laughs> I'm not planning to do anything, no. I will ask you in a year, see if, if you can really <laughs> stick to that. Yeah. I mean, there are wonderful people in journalism. It, it, it burns some out. It's burned me out in the end, but many people will find their way into it and, and contribute to uh, keeping us an informed and caring society. 
That was Simon Collins, the education reporter at the New Zealand Herald, until last week when he retired after 42 years in journalism, during which time he filled several other roles at the Herald and other newspapers and even helped to start and edit City Voice, a weekly newspaper for Wellington back in the 1990s, run as a cooperative by its staff. Now, as Simon mentioned there, he's now going back to work as a budget advisor for the St Vincent de Paul Society, another way he says to create a more caring community, as he sought to do in all those years in journalism as well. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, Sunday is usually the big day of the week for current affairs at TVNZ. But today, Easter Sunday, there's very little. Though Māori current affairs show Marae and Pacific current affairs show Tangata Pacifica are on as usual this morning, the weekly politics show Q&A has been replaced with Shop Well for Less, and the flagship weekly show Sunday in primetime has been pulled for a 60th birthday tribute to Bradley Walsh, the British host of TVNZ's hit quiz show from the UK, The Chase. That's a bit of a bummer for current affairs fans, as Sunday wasn't on the previous Sunday either, because TVNZ had live international cricket on instead. But there was one current affairs show on last weekend, TVNZ's newest one, A Current Affair. Tonight. Thorium, protactinium, uranium. The boy wonder. So you can remember 1,800 digits. Yeah. That's a lot. Now, A Current Affair takes its name and a lot of its content from the Australian Channel 9 show of the same name that's been around since the 1970s. And last week in Australia, it had a huge audience for Prime Minister Scott Morrison being grilled at length about his response to sexual abuse scandals that are rocking his government and Australia's parliament. This has taken me deeper into this issue than than I've appreciated before. Where have you been? And two days later, A Current Affair and host Tracy Grimshaw had another huge story on their hands. Hello, I'm Tracy Grimshaw. Welcome to A Current Affair, coming to you again tonight from the State Emergency Operations Centre at Sydney Olympic Park. The Weather Bureau says the superstorm is expected to break up overnight. Dimity Clancy's just filed this report. But last Sunday, neither Dimity Clancy's startling report on the floods or that headline-making head-to-head with ScoMo made the cut for last weekend's New Zealand version of A Current Affair on TVNZ2. Instead, they led with a puff piece they made themselves to promote an upcoming TVNZ comedy quiz and then two more yarns from across the ditch. The mystery of a missing magpie called Malvi. See you soon. Going to be a movie star. And the secret $16 million promise to a neighbour. I, I don't have enough money to retire. I'm probably going to be eating dog food. I mean, When TVNZ announced last month that a new local current affairs show was coming, we were excited. It's the first new one in prime time for years. What sort of local news show is a current affair? Well, disappointingly, not that local at all. In a current affairs first New Zealand outing on TV2, the local content was limited to Matty McLean interviewing the latest Bachelorette. And the next episode kicked off like this. Tonight. I've never been more terrified in my life. What sort of a sicko does that to their neighbour? How a disagreement over a tree escalated to sexual stalking. Plus, from this to this, haircuts from hell. That tree was in Queensland, and the report from Australia's Channel 9. And those haircuts from hell, also from across the ditch. While they might look funny, there's nothing hilarious about this one. And after that, there was this startling story from Brisbane. 
When snake lady Kylie Lowe comes home, her day, her night, her chores are always with the short-term company of a coloured friend. Now, the story of Kylie Lowe and her addiction to jelly snake lollies and energy drinks first screened on a current affair in Australia back in early December. But to make the point that that much sugar, day after day, could really be fatal, reporter Brady Hall showed her a wheelbarrow full of 64 kilograms of sugar. Every two months, Kylie is consuming 64 kilos of sugar. How did I let this happen? Viewers were told that Kylie Lowe was formerly a cystic fibrosis patient who had a double lung transplant in 2012. The surgery and medication that followed kick-started the sugar habit she now calls an addiction, and she says it's left her feeling intense guilt. However, Channel 9's A Current Affair said they were there to help by calling in a celebrity hypnotherapist. In three minutes, we can break the habit. Snake Lady Kylie appears to be clean. Let's hope for her sake those snakes won't be so deadly after all. Say goodbye. Handy PR there for the hypnotherapist, whose service and app are on the market. But did it really work for Kylie Lowe? And since we filmed that story last week, Kylie's told us she hasn't touched a snake or energy drink. And that's the first time in a decade. Look after yourself, Kylie. Now that, remember, screened on TVNZ's A Current Affair more than two months after Channel 9 showed it across the Tasman. So what's the story now? Well, TVNZ's A Current Affair didn't say when it ran Kylie's story. And while Kylie's blog doesn't say whether she's back on the snakes again or not, it does say that just 10 days after that story screened in Australia, she was rushed to hospital. In a blog post labelled Fun with Sepsis, she said she was there for six more days, supervised by transplant specialists. Now, here at MediaWatch, we're no experts in all of this, but crashing out of a 10-year diet of heavy sugar overnight seems certain to upset a body struggling to assimilate a double transplant, not to mention the medication that would go with that. And one month in, TVNZ's new local current affairs show has yet to feature any local content that's not puffing up TVNZ's own entertainment shows. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team this week. We'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National. Media Watch from Colin Peacock and Hayden Donnell and you can listen back to their episodes as with all our conversations on Sunday morning by putting RNZ Sunday into the search engine.